Amen. And if we're lost without him, then certainly everyone who doesn't have him is lost. And so segue into, again, a very intense, important subject, picking up kind of with a topic that we were discussing last week about how it is come to be that we live in a society today that is convincing us somehow that it's not politically correct to talk about the cross or to tell your friends about Jesus or to tell them that they're lost or that they're sinners and they need to repent and get right with God. And it's sad, it's a shame because we're being conditioned by this culture so much so that maybe you saw the Billy Graham, My Hope for America at some point this week, maybe you didn't. But, you know, I was surprised when I found out that it was in a prime time slot on Fox News. I'm like, you can't do that. That's national television. You can't put the cross on national television. You know, that's our instinct because we've been so conditioned. And then to sit there and talk about the cross afterwards just doesn't make any sense. You can't pray before town hall meetings or before a meeting at Congress anymore. That's what they want you to think. Changing the way that we approach this situation. Or if you do pray, you got to rotate the prayers so that we're praying to different gods so that everybody is happy. And so again and again and again, we're reminded that there's one hope outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for mankind. There is no hope. And so these things have to be so important to us. We cannot allow the society to convince us that this message doesn't have to go out just because we already have that, just because we've been saved. We got to push back on that. My old pastor used to say, if you had the cure for cancer with you and you met someone who had cancer, you'd take that needle and stick it in their arm whether they liked it or not. You know, even if they were like, well, sorry, I think that you thinking you're the only one who has the cure is narrow, you'd stick that needle in their arm and make them take it anyway. And I think there's a sense in which we have to push back on this world and go, no, sorry, you're not going to tell us. You don't get to tell us what it is that is true and what it is that is not when we have God's word. We did a wedding here yesterday for a couple that goes to our church that wanted to renew their vows in front of basically most of the people that they were married in front of when they were first married. And I tell you what, it was very different than the wedding we did here last Sunday at the end of second service where it was mostly believers in the room. I had some looks, had a few looks yesterday, had a few people squirming in their seats. Uh, it was awesome. Um, <laughs> You know, we're in a bubble because most of us here, you know, we're Christians. And so we just take God's word and say, that's what he says. But a lot of people come in and go, wait, you can't say that. And I'm like, well, yeah, I can't. We're in church right now, you know. But I think that was the impression that they, that they got. And we have to push back. And that's why it's so neat when we see this gospel of Mark and we see Jesus so busy about this work. And it's such an important work that we're called to do by God, that we're to tell everyone you know, we're to tell everyone about the good news. And so what does Mark record? The activity again and again and again. In Revelation chapter 4, there are four cherubim in that passage. You can look it up later. But in Revelation chapter 4, there are four cherubim there with basically four different faces. One is um, likened to the image of a lion. And one to a calf or an ox. And one to a man. And one to an eagle. And 
church tradition for years, what Bible teachers believe is that these four cherubim speak to or represent the four different gospels and what is characteristic about each one of those gospels. So then the lion would be characteristic of the gospel of Matthew because he writes of Jesus as a king. And that's exactly what the lion is, the king of the forest, right? And then, of course, the man, the cherubim that is pictured as a man, would represent the gospel of Luke because Luke is really focused on the human side of Jesus, how he felt as a man and taking on flesh like you and I, although not uh, fallen flesh, but flesh that was limited. You know, Jesus was a man. He had to sleep. He had to eat. Very fascinating subject that we can revisit on another day. And then the other cherubim was that of an eagle represented the gospel of John, soaring majestically because God is represented, Jesus is represented as God in the book of John, as divine. Well, the second cherubim in that Revelation 4 passage was that of the one that's pictured as an ox or a calf because that is an animal that is about labor, that is about service and work. And that's what we're seeing um, in this book of Mark so far. Jesus getting a lot of things done without becoming undone. So much happening even in this first chapter. What takes Matthew eight chapters to record, Mark basically records in chapter one. So it's rapid fire here. More concerned with what he did than what he said. As you've heard it said before, actions speak louder than words or always be preaching and when necessary, use words. And Jesus is doing that for us here in this passage as, again, he records more of what he's doing than what he's saying. But what we're going to see here in the second half of this chapter or the second two-thirds of this chapter is Jesus communicating loud and clear through his actions. They may be subtle at first glance, but I think we'll be able to draw these things out and see that Jesus is preaching all over the place by what he does. It's very fascinating, especially as we get towards the end of the chapter. Okay, so stay tuned for that. Along those lines, um, Mark's favorite word, remember from last week, is the word immediately. It's in here several times this morning, and it's in here 36 to 40 some odd times, depending on the translation of the Bible that you have in front of you. Another word that Mark likes is and along those lines. In fact, I think one verse has the word and in it eight times. So and, 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 and. Someone came up to me after second service last week and said, I think there's over 1,100 ands in the book of Mark. And then he proceeded this week to count them. And he called me yesterday and said that there were 1,115 ands. We like to be precise here. You don't want to be careful in what we tell you. So 1,115 ands in the book of Mark. And I'm, again, just kind of suggesting that there's this ongoing, continual activity in the life of Jesus. In fact, where we left off last time in verse 11, Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist. You got all of this remarkable thing happening. The Father is speaking from heaven. The Spirit is descending like a dove upon Jesus. Jesus is receiving the baptism of the Spirit. And John the Baptist is proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. What a wonderful event. I mean, you could probably have all kind of commentary on this and go for two chapters about what that represented and what it meant for Jesus to be baptized and why Jesus would be baptized and all this kind of thing. But Mark just jumps right back into a new segment here, verse 12. He says, immediately, and there's that word, the Spirit drove him 
into the wilderness. Now, thinking about what we know the wilderness is, you would think that the devil would have driven Jesus into the wilderness, but it says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, allowing him, as we're going to see here, to be tempted, but he was tempted so that you and I would know that he had authority over the devil. It says in verse 13, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts or animals, and the angels ministered to him. Of course, we know from the other gospels that Jesus was victorious in this temptation. The book of Hebrews says that he is tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. So he never gave in to sin, but he's tempted in the way as we are. Again, the human side of Jesus coming out in the book of Mark, not just in the book of Luke. Now remember that the same spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness, the same spirit that fell upon him last time, is also the same spirit that is living inside of believers, helping us to overcome sin, to resist temptation as well. The identical spirit. So you say, well, how did Jesus overcome temptation? You say, well, he's God. Well, that's true. But he relied upon the Holy Spirit. Again, there's a very human side of him. Notice the angels ministered to him. Why do anybody need to minister to Jesus? Because he had a human side. So they served him. They came, ministered to him. Awesome, awesome, pointing out these kinds of things. Because in our study of John, it was all about him being God, all about him being divine. But here we see Jesus, he did. He took on human flesh. And we sang about that a little while ago. But unlike the other gospel writers, Mark doesn't give us a lot of detail about this scene. He just notes the event and moves on. Verse 14, now after John, that is John the Baptist, was put in prison. Remember he had spoken out against Herod for his adultery. So Herod locked him up to shut him up. Well, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, notice, again, as we saw last week, that this is a very similar message than the one that John the Baptist was preaching. John the Baptist was limited in that he was pointing to the Messiah's coming. That's the only difference here is Jesus saying, the time is now. It is at hand. The kingdom of God has arrived. But principally, repentance is at the heart of what both of them are preaching. And one of the things about repentance is I think it might be one of the most misunderstood concepts that there is. We get this idea that Repentance means, oh, we're such miserable people and we've got to get down on our knees and cry out to God or he's going to smoke us and we deserve hellfire. And, and that's kind of true in a way, but that's all that we think about. We think about the, the guy downtown or in the movies, got the sandwich board around his neck. He's walking around saying, repent, the end is near and something along those lines. And again, well, that's probably also in a sense true, but the world, I think, thinks of the concept of repenting as somehow degrading or demanding or insulting or something along those lines. And I think it's because they're not quite fully understanding how actually glorious and wonderful repentance is. Repentance, or to repent, just means to turn. So when you're finally worn out, when you're finally tired of doing things your way, when you realize that the decisions that you're making are leading to a dead end, I mean, to have as an option for you in your life 
to be able to go in another direction, a better direction, a glorious direction, the right direction. That's not degrading. If you were lost and your GPS just kept taking you to a wall and you couldn't get to your buddy's house for dinner and all of a sudden you were presented with another way that got you to his house, you wouldn't think anything of it. You wouldn't go, well, that's degrading. I can't believe it. You would say to yourself, that was the right way to go. And that's exactly what repentance is. It's to turn and to go in a different direction and then to turn from our sin, to believe in Jesus Christ, to follow him, and to be released from the captivity of sin and of the flesh and the pull of this world. I think verses 14 and 15 are more of a summary statement than a specific event. Um, as we'll see throughout the rest of the chapter, Mark is recording specific events. In fact, it would seem from this point forward, from verses 16 through verses uh, 34, all of what we're about to read happens in one day. It says, verse 16, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me. That was their responsibility. And I will make you, that's God's responsibility, to make us into whatever is required for us to fulfill God's call upon our lives. We follow him and he will be perfectly diligent to make sure that our lives bear fruit. Mike Gibble and I were talking on the phone the other day. We were talking about people in this church in a good way. Talking about how fruitful individual lives have been in this church that have been touched by God. And we came to the conclusion that Never is one person's life impacted, just one person's life impacted for Christ, when one person's life for Christ is impacted. Never is just one person impacted, ever. When someone begins to follow Jesus Christ, always, inevitably, other people will be impacted. If we will follow him, he too will do that for us. He will help us to become fishers of men. And this is what it sort of looks like. Verse 18. They immediately left their nets, followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee. So this is not the half-brother of Jesus, James, who wrote the book of James. And John, his brother, is the author of the book of John, who also were in the boat mending their nets. So they're fishermen also. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and went after him. So you got two disciples casting a net, you got two disciples mending a net, four fishermen hard at work. But notice what Jesus does as he calls them. He takes their natural occupation and he gives it spiritual significance. This is exactly what he does for every single Christian in the world. He takes your skill set, what he has given you, your relevant experience, even your talent, your ambition, your goals, the things that you like to do, and he offers to rechannel those things into an eternal direction. But we got to be willing to submit those things, those gifts, to him. Every once in a while, sometimes we even have to leave some of those things behind as they left their nets behind. Sometimes we kind of 
walk away from some of our hobbies and things that might be getting in the way. But we have to be willing to submit our gifts, submit our passions to God, and then he can rechannel those things for his glory. So let me ask you, in the privacy of your heart this morning, has God called you to do something for him using that talent, that experience, that skill set that he's developed that you thought was only for your job or only to be a parent or only to be a friend? Has God called you to use that um, in serving him in some capacity? And then the follow-up question would be, have you responded immediately as these guys did? They immediately responded. That's not just Mark's favorite word. It's an important word for our text this morning. Sometimes I think the only difference between the disciples, who were just normal men, and you and I, was that their response of obedience unto Jesus was immediate. And I would submit to you that obedience is something less than obedience if the response is not immediate. Right? We have to respond right away. And this is not just talking about God's call upon your life in terms of what service you do to or for church body or your community, but just even the things that he's uh, tugging away at your heart that he wants you to do in your own personal life, that obedience and immediate obedience is something that we need. Well, now that Jesus has four disciples with him, it says, verse 21, then they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. See, the scribes didn't teach with authority because they had a tendency to basically just quote other scribes. They never really taught the way Jesus taught. Jesus taught with authority. Now, don't get me wrong. I know he's God and all that, and no one will ever be able to preach with the authority that Jesus Christ preached with. I'm not challenging that assertion. But I think one of the reasons that the scribes didn't preach with authority, one of the reasons why some Bible teachers today don't preach with authority, one of the reasons why Christians don't share the good news with authority is because we don't take God's word at face value. Because the very um, authority that is given in proclaiming God's word comes from God's word. That is how you get authority. It is his word that enables you to share with authority. So if we would just take him at his word that everyone needs the gospel, then you would be the authority wherever you were where there are unbelievers because you know the gospel and they don't, or at least they don't believe it at this point. I think it's interesting. In a gospel where Mark emphasizes more of what Jesus did than what he said, that before he records one miracle, he first makes sure that he shows us that Jesus began by preaching. Just in case that we would be thinking that his authority came from the things that he did. In other words, his miracles. In reality, they recognize the authority in Jesus from his preaching first. Authority comes from a commitment to the truth of God's word, not signs and wonders. 
Okay, but he did do lots of signs and wonders, and Mark's about to accord many of them here in the second half of the chapter. He says, verse 23, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, so it would be a demon-possessed man. And he cried out, verse 24, saying, let us alone. <laughs> like he had been with them for some time. Leave us alone. He was a part of the church. Somehow he snuck in. Nobody realized this guy was demon-possessed. He's just quietly keeping his demon possession to himself. The demon doesn't want to give up who he is. But now he is giving up who he is. And he says, let us alone. <laughs> oh, no. I don't like the guest speaker today. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to hide out this time around. He says, what have you to do? Uh, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this is fascinating when a demon points out that Jesus is the Holy One of God. It reminds you of what James says when James says that even the demons believe and tremble. And that's also why, by the way, we get this emphasis again on how important it is for us to share the good news of the gospel. We have the truth serum. We have the cure for sin. And we we, we want to, in our minds, just assume everybody's going to, it's all good, everybody's going to go to heaven. But that's not the case. Because an intellectual agreement that there is a God or that Jesus died on the cross is not enough. The demons don't just believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. They know he died on the cross for our sins. They know he did. And not a single one of them is going to be in heaven. Not a single one of them. Notice, because a demon does exactly what most of the unsaved world does. They acknowledge in their mind, they know that's him, but they want nothing to do with him. He said, leave us alone. You know, are you going to destroy us? That kind of thing. And Jesus responds this way, verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Literally means to close or muzzle the mouth, to stop the mouth, to reduce the silence, to put a cork in it. Literally, that's what Jesus was saying very gently to the demon. And then look how the demon responds. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, and there's that word authority again, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Of course it would. Because even powers of hell had to obey a simple command from Jesus. I really like it. Those two words, be quiet. All Jesus has to do is turn to the demon and go, shush. Shh. Stop talking. <laughs> That's the power that Jesus has over all of the powers of hell. So you want to know how powerful our God is. He just said, shush. And that demon had to come out of him. Awesome. You know, you see all these movies and rituals are done and things to perform an exorcism. Jesus just goes, shh, shutty, quiet. And the demon had to obey what he asked him to do. Pretty cool. Miraculous. Miraculous. Isn't it interesting? Mark begins with probably about the most extreme example of a miracle that we can think of other than a resurrection. And then in contrast, he follows it up with this. Verse 29, now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, but Simon would later be renamed 
Peter, okay, Peter. So this is Peter's wife's mom. Did you get that part that Peter's wife? So if Peter was the first pope, then he was a married pope, just saying, okay. But he lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. Wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. She has a fever. Okay, this is the God of the universe we're talking about here. In him, all things consist, Colossians says. The book of John says, nothing was made that wasn't made through him. And you're going to bring to him a woman with a fever? He's got demons to cast out. He's got lepers to cleanse. He's got prophecies to fulfill. And these guys have the gall to say, hey, can you help her? She's got a fever. <laughs> what does that tell us? Again, in the spectrum of miracles, you got, other than resurrection, casting out a demon. Ain't a worse situation to be in in this lifetime than to be demon-possessed. No dire straits, nothing more dire straits than being demon-possessed on this end. As incredible of a miracle as it gets. On the other end, taking care of a little temperature, a little headache. And what does that tell us? That tells us that we bring everything to Jesus. That there is nothing too big or nothing too small to bring to him in prayer. I'm not saying you got to pray about where you're going to go to lunch this afternoon. You can if you want to. But what he is clearly saying is we can bring every single thing to Jesus Christ. It's the full spectrum of things. And so verse 31, he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her. I'm not inserting those immediately, by the way. Those are right there. I'm making this up. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And she served them. And then he just keeps going. At evening when the sun had set, so it's still the same day, they brought to him all who were sick and all those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. And I have no idea what that means. Except that maybe he just didn't want the, de uh, the demons to do his PR campaign for him. So he says, you don't get to talk. Shush. <laughs> but this is Mark describing for us just a typical day at the office for Jesus. The amount of activity, the amount of things. You remember, all the way from he calls his disciples, he goes into the synagogue, he preaches in the synagogue, he casts out a demon, then they leave from there, and they go to Peter's house, and he heals um, his mother-in-law who has a fever. Then the whole city comes to Peter's house, and he's curing diseases, casting out demons. This is just a day at the office, just one day. And you can tell because verse 35 says, now in the morning, so now finally we're on day two, I guess, of his public ministry, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So Jesus was in the habit of getting up long before he had to, to seek his father in prayer. Isaiah chapter 50, a prophecy concerning the Messiah, um, written from the disposition of the Messiah speaking, said that this would be something that would mark the Messiah, that he would seek his father. This is what it says, and please listen carefully to this, because I'm going to quote it again in explaining it to you. Isaiah chapter 50, I believe it's verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, 
that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear. So what he does in fulfilling this prophecy, but what he just does in practicality, Jesus, he awakens, it says, morning by morning. And the first thing he does, and I don't care what time you wake up in the morning, but I would say it's important that the first thing you do is that you seek God. It's the first thing that you do so that we would be prepared for, number one, divine appointments. He said there that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. If I want to be ready to share someone, something with someone who is weary, which is most of this world, then I need to get in the habit of seeking him in the morning so he can prepare me for that. And then number two, so that we'd have a sensitivity to the spirit. It also said there, the Lord has opened my ear. Open my ear. I'm ready to hear, God, because I've sought you in the morning. Jesus modeling for us a perfect dependence that we need on the Father every day. I'm not saying you had to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. You do if you got, have to get to work by 5. But if you work at 11, then you can get up at 9.30 and seek God. But you've got to seek God. I used to argue with this. I used to go, what does it matter when you do your devotion? You can do your devotions anytime during the day. And it's true, it's better that you do, do your devotions at 10 o'clock at night than not at all, but it could be possible. Could it be possible that you miss some things during the day because you weren't ready, because your ears weren't open to what God had for you that day, and you weren't sensitive in the Spirit, to the Spirit, with the opportunities, with the appointments? with the hope, the message of hope, the gospel. Not enough people are hearing the gospel today because we're not seeking God. Is it possible? Can we take some of that responsibility upon ourselves as Christians by saying, yeah, more people would hear about the gospel if we we're more sensitive to the Spirit. And we'd be more sensitive to the Spirit if we woke up in the morning and sought Him first. Because once everybody else gets into your day, <laughs> that's too late, right? You've had one of those days. 1.30, 2.30 in the afternoon, you haven't had a chance to talk to God. You've already talked to 27 people. And that's what happens here. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And that's what happens, right? By 11 o'clock or 12 or whatever your schedule is, too late. Everyone's looking for you. You're in demand. You're needed. Three emails to return, four texts, five phone calls. And there's nothing you can do at that point. So we got to seek God first. And of course, everyone was looking for Jesus. I mean, everyone wanted to be healed or everyone wanted to see a miracle. But because he had sought his father early that morning, he had a different response. He said, verse 38, but he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose, I have come forth. See, primarily, why did Jesus come? Even though Mark is emphasizing the things that he did more than what he said, what was the purpose for Jesus coming? To proclaim the good news. To give people the cure for sin. To let people know the gospel primarily. So he says, look, I've already preached in this town. I didn't come to heal people of their physical ailments per se. I came to cure them of their spiritual disease that is killing their soul. Jesus was a preacher that happened to perform miracles. He wasn't a miracle worker who happened to preach. Primarily his focus was
was on proclaiming the gospel. And so, verse 39, and he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Now, verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him. And I think you got to look at that word imploring. It's a very strong word, which means this leper was begging Jesus. And you probably know if you know anything about lepers, because lepers were a total outcast in that day with an incurable disease. And I don't know, I think they had to be like something like a hundred yards away from anyone that was healthy. And so they had a hopeless situation, a life of isolation. They could not enter into the temple because they were considered unclean. So again, no hope. Let's talk about being lost. They were totally and completely desperate. And by the way, sometimes that's exactly what needs to happen in someone's life before they really get to a place where they want to hear the gospel. It's exactly why we need to be sensitive to the Spirit so that we don't walk right past the hopeless. Because that's the person who really needs to hear, who wants to hear, who may be actually ready to start being real with God and to start listening to what he has to say. As someone that is desperate, they might be open, they might be willing. That's why we need to be sensitive. So this man, he comes to Jesus and it says, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. And probably this is the first time that this man had been touched by anyone other than a leper since he had had leprosy. And so Jesus said to him, I am willing. I do not believe that there is a single person on this planet that God is not willing to save. Not a single person. I reject that outright, completely. He is willing. And so he said, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he, now get this, this is a subtlety, but very important. And he, being Jesus, strictly warned him, being the man that was a leper, okay? He strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way and show yourself to the, and circle that word or underline it if you make notes in your Bible, the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. As a testimony to who? To the priest. Wait a minute. What in the world is happening here? This is a very, again, subtle, but I think fascinating and remarkable thing that's happening because essentially what Jesus is saying to this leper is, listen, let's keep this between you and me and the priests. Now, why in the world would Jesus do that? Why would he tell him to only go share this with the priests? Well, Back in Leviticus 14, God had instituted a ceremony for the healing or the curing of a leper. That the leper would 
go to the priest directly if he was cured of his leprosy and they would offer up an offering of thanksgiving unto God for God doing a miraculous thing by curing the leprosy. The thing about that specific implementation of that offering, and this is, un, this is outrageously awesome, so please listen, was no one was ever cured of leprosy in the Old Testament. I mean, Naaman and like one other person, it was basically an incurable disease. And now Jesus comes on the scene and one by one by one by one, all these lepers are showing up to the priests saying, I'm cured of my leprosy. What did that tell those priests? Think about it. It told those priests the Messiah had arrived. They would have been blown away. So in the same way that we see this entire spectrum, he'll take away a fever, he'll cast out a demon, we see the spectrum also. He will touch the leper, but he also cares about the priest as well. He wanted to reach the priests. He wants to save the big shots of this world. He wants Barack Obama and LeBron James to be saved as well, not just the common people. Jesus loves the common people, but he loves all people. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But it didn't work out the way he wanted exactly, because the leper couldn't keep his silence. How could you keep your silence about something like that? So verse 45 says, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to find him from every direction. I'm just going to close with something simple for us to consider this morning. It's funny how Jesus told the leper to tell no one, and he told everyone. And Jesus tells us to tell everyone, and we tell almost no one. But he was cured of leprosy. What is leprosy? Leprosy, quite simply, is a disease of the flesh that eats away at you until you die. Every single person in this world has it called sin and we have the serum we have the cure and so the challenge I know lately I've been on it I'm sorry I'm not trying to hammer you but it's what we got so we're talking about it we got to get back to work the church in general but this church too me specifically we got to get back to the gospel we got to make sure people know that we have the cure for the flesh-eating sickness that has plagued every single person on this planet. we got to proclaim that. If this man couldn't keep his mouth shut about being cured of a disease that would kill him, why is it that we keep our mouth shut about a disease that will send people to hell for all of eternity? Something important for us to consider this morning.